Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Bookshop Podcast, where I interview booksellers and independent bookshop owners from around the world. You're listening to episode number 83. To help the show reach more people, please share with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Jessica Boxdale Inclan is the author of 15 novels, including the award-winning The Burning Hour, as well as Her Daughter's Eyes, The Matter of Grace, and When You Believe. Her debut poetry collection, When We Almost Drowned, was published in March 2019, and her second poetry book, Grim Honey, was published in April 2021. A Pushcart Prize, Million Writers Award, and Best of the Net nominee, Barksdale in Clown was an English professor at Diablo College in Pleasant Hill, California for 31 years and continues to teach novel writing for UCLA Extension and the MFA program for Southern New Hampshire University. She holds an MA in English Literature from San Francisco State University and an MFA from the Rainier Writers Workshop at Pacific Lutheran University. Born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, Jessica now lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband. Jessica's latest novel, The Play's The Thing, is a time-traveling tale of Shakespearean romance between a 21st century English professor and the Bard of Avon. Hi, Jessica, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Mandy. I'm so happy to be talking to you about books. Likewise. So let's begin with a short synopsis of your new book, The Play's The Thing, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for reading it. Um, the short synopsis is a disenchanted 30-something professor finds herself suddenly appearing in Shakespeare's quarters and mayhem ensues. But of course, the important part to the synopsis is this is the writer she's been studying her whole life. And she manages to help him and herself change through the course of the novel uh, and return with unexpected um, results. (laughs) Yes, that's for sure. And we'd better not say anything else or we'll give the uh, story away. And what prompted the idea for the story and how much of your personality is in the story? Because we have Jessica Randall, English professor, and Jessica Barksdale in Clan, writer, retired English professor. Actually, maybe you're not retired because I can see a whiteboard that looks like it's been in use recently right behind you. Yeah, oh, the, I was actually teach, teaching a class of, to Chinese students through UCLA Extension, uh, and uh, I, ha- I can't teach with a PowerPoint. I want a whiteboard, you know. Um, so this is an interesting story how it began. It was a long time ago. It was Christmas 2014, and my older son's then-girlfriend said, now, where'd your name come from? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, what does it mean? She's a little tipsy, I think, from libations, celebratory libations. And I said, well, it's either a made-up name or Shakespeare made it up. And he used it in The Merchant of Venice. And she said, well, wow, that's so interesting. What What if Shakespeare, you know, it's his fault. You're his fault. What if? all the Jessicas and all the world just showed up and, and haunted him. And I'm like, 
well, what if? Yeah, and so she, I really thought about it and um, I got hooked on that idea. So I think it was between Christmas and New Year. I just, what if, what if? And so I decided to m- make it happen, just play it out on the page. And I got very interested in this. And of course, I, you know, I didn't go the route that my Jessica does in the novel. I, I had children very early, so I stopped my education at one point and began teaching at a community college, which is what I retired from after 32 years. And uh, I didn't go into teaching for a university until much later, which is what I'm doing now in my retirement, teaching online uh, for Southern New Hampshire University and UCLA. Uh, So uh, we're very similar, I think, in that we love literature. Uh, but she's been alone a lot longer than I was and she doesn't have children yet and she hasn't found that person yet. So she's still really questing for herself. And of course, fiction Jessica and nonfiction Jessica, you both have that interest in Shakespeare. Well, yeah, you know, and I never really taught him. We did have a class at my community college. We had, a, we have Diablo Valley College has a wonderful literature for a community college, a huge offerings. And I always was kind of scared, but I would take, you know, the Merchant of Venice uh, because it's so problematic and King Lear, which is also problematic, uh, Hamlet, Othello. Um, the, the tragedies are my favorite. So I would teach them in specific places, in specific classes, but I never, never stood up and just did the whole Shakespeare thing. Yeah, that's interesting. And let's talk about the research process of this book. Was that something that you did continually while writing or you more of a, a research everything and then I write kind of writer? The first bloom of the writing was just off the cuff and based on what I knew. And that draft was pretty messy and ugly. I even thought for a minute that Shakespeare should sound like he lived in Elizabethan England. And I I was dispatched of that notion after the first reader said, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't really stop in, until I had this a framework of a like, let's call it 100 pages. But then I spent a very long time going over all my notes. I, I had a writing group at the time, and several of those people had taught Shakespeare officially in the whole class, and people read it. And my mother and I went to, in fact, I put my mother and I uh, and myself in the, um, the story they're at a, a postman park in, in London. We are. And Jessica actually sees them. So we went over and we just, she came with me and we did the stomping grounds and, and um, there was the travel and then there was the reading and then there was the more research. And I read so many books and I actually did a weird visual tour of 1600 England online where I, it was like a video game and I got to, to wander around what it would, would look like. So it went on for years and I actually shelved this book for a while and wrote something else and then came back to this book. And I, I just, there was something about it. I just, 
I had to make it right. It took a long time. <laughs> and you raise a good point, which I think is important for readers and other writers, especially of historical fiction, to understand the amount of research that goes into writing historical fiction obviously is determined by the writer. But I know for myself, because I was a costume designer for so many years, I love learning about fabrics and what people were wearing and, and what their shoes were like in different eras. So for me, that's part of the whole thing is really important. And it takes a lot of time and time that you have to invest in your project. And you go down a heck of a lot of rabbit holes. Well, you mentioned costume design. That I watched a lot of costume designers speaking about clothing uh, of that time and the fabrics and the stitching and the the, the way it looked. And I, I studied, I, I probably still have them. I have all these websites saved because I would kept going back. What is she wearing? Well, just getting her out of the house. What is she wearing? What is she eating? What does the street look like? What are what is she smelling? What is she feeling? What is going on with their hair? How do they brush their teeth? <laughs> yes, and it's all that day-to-day minutiae of just getting through a day when you're looking at historical fiction or doing the research for it. It's painstaking. It takes up a lot of time, but it's so much fun. Did you get hooked on all of the videos that are available on YouTube about costumes and watching people get dressed as if they were actually getting dressed in that time period? Oh, yeah. I loved it. And also some people who spend their lives making clothing from that period to sell to other people who want to wear it. And, you know, I would just go, I'm like, I want that. I want that. <laughs> and what am I going to do with it? I was still teaching in person at the time. What am I going to, you know, wander into class wearing a whole, a, a kirtle and a, and a, and a stomacher and a, and a rough. <laughs> now that sounds like fun, but it would have been uncomfortable. Okay. So back to writing. The theme of marriage and connection rises throughout the story. At the end of chapter 12, Jessica considers a past relationship. Quote, With Philip, there had been some long, passionate nights, but I always held back knowing that every sexual moment was an assignation, an evil breaking of the rules, forbidden. End quote. And later in chapter 14, after Jessica meets Anne Hathaway and the girls, she says, quote, most days, I pushed Anne Hathaway, that mythical wife, right out of my mind, convincing myself the Shakespeare's had a marriage grown old and bad. But here she was with her two children, concerned about her husband, eager to see him. Worse, I had done exactly what I had done with Philip. Over the years, I'd crafted his wife, Emma, into a deadened, lifeless husk, invisible and worthless." End quote. Jessica, did this theme appear organically or was it on your radar during the conception period of the story? In essence, to me, it seemed the main arc of Jessica's growth. You know, I definitely knew that her quest, her goal was to understand her love life and to understand her need for a partner and to not take a, a borrowed partner. And I also really personally hate how we treat first the wife 
of the boyfriend that one has and then how we treat the woman who's having the affair with the man. We always sort of blame either side of that equation. We blame the wife for being horrible or we blame the girlfriend for being horrible. And in the middle, there's the man who doesn't get his comeuppance at any, at any time in the conversation between two women. The other piece of this is that her father who left. And I feel like there's, she just does not have an ability when she starts her story in this novel to feel that she is, she is deserving of a committed relationship and a man who is committed to her. And she's made excuses for herself or she's vilified the women or ignored the women like she does with, and most of us do, frankly, sort of ignore Anne Hathaway unless, you know, we're really focused on her. We just, oh yeah, she's over there with her second best bed. Let's just forget about her and focus on Shakespeare. So I think I might have later in the revising process found this thread and pulled it hard but I think it did come from her parents' divorce and work its way into a natural arc. But it was something I could use at the end to really then finish the thread. To wrap it up. Yeah, it was beautifully done. And I had just finished rereading Hamnet. So everything was fresh in my mind. So that was kind of interesting then moving on to your book. Oh, yes. Agnes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, Hamnet is an extraordinary book, and Maggie O'Farrell's writing is so beautiful. Uh, I recently read an article from Writer's Digest that you wrote uh, dated May 18, 2021, and in it is this little segment I'd like to talk about, quote, If you are like some of my writing students, most of my children and my mother, you would be very happy to never have to sit through a Shakespeare play again much less read anything by him, even an itty-bitty sonnet. I'm not sure where this antipathy comes from, though I blame standardized testing, end quote. I've taught high school art and AP art, and I agree with you regarding standardized testing. They don't help grow inquisitive minds or encourage creativity. They're not helpful to teacher or student, but rather seem to be a way for bureaucrats to gain funds and ratings. What are your thoughts on how we can change this format? I don't know if you've been watching The Chair uh, starring Sandra Oh. Yes, I'm currently watching it. So how I feel like we could talk about this question is compare. There are two teachers forced to team teach. The young, vibrant, young woman and the old standard uh, literature teacher. And what I think has sort of happened, um, like standardized testing, where we are where we are forced to learn rote facts and and regurgitate them for whatever purpose, whether it's for college admittance or graduate school or just moving through your classes successfully in grammar school, is that we're stuck on ways that people learn or need to learn about literature. Uh, you know, for instance, quizzing people on literature seems ridiculous to me. And what the young woman in the show is doing there, and I've done things like this in classes where she had her students writing songs about Chaucer uh, and, 
and the other teacher who wanted to deliver his lecture is just stunned because the old way of teaching is is clearly not how we can bring people into people like Chaucer or Shakespeare. And when you can break down Shakespeare into the essential feelings and themes, then students go, wow, that is so amazing. I, I took a friend once to go see Macbeth, and she did not want to go at all. I, f- I forced her. I said, I, it was Berkeley Rep. And I said, I have an extra ticket, and I've asked six people, and no one wants to go. And she goes, I don't want to go. I said, well, you're coming with me. And so we went. And my friend is is not, you know, did not go to college and she did not read Shakespeare. But at the end of it, she turned to me and she said, oh, my God, that was good. And so the idea of seeing Shakespeare performed live or acting out Shakespeare live actually can make people understand him. And my last example, I had a couple of dicey years in the aughts where my teaching ability uh, faltered uh, due to personal circumstances. And I, I kind of maybe gave more A's than I should have. And one semester after I'd come to my senses, I walked in and I realized somehow that all the international students had found out that I maybe wasn't the hardest grader. <laughs> and I had assigned um, Hamlet and something else in completely incomprehensible to most native speakers, right? So I looked around. I'm like, I have all these Chinese and Japanese students, and I'm going to teach them Hamlet. So I broke them into groups, and we started performing Hamlet every day, and they understood it. And and I just think that it's about getting the experience of these people who have so much to say, but in a, they say it in a way we really don't understand. Your basic reader isn't going to understand. So I think I veered way off your, your uh, question. <laughs> That's okay. I think I'm understanding that what you're saying is by flicking that switch, coming up with different ideas rather than using standardized testing is more likely to help students appreciate language and story and gain a love of learning. I'm kind of passionate about that whole cause. So I'm going to stop there because I could go on for quite a while. When I finished reading your book, I wondered, have you ever considered adapting the book to a play? Well, interestingly, you know, I went through some submission issues with this book in various drafts. And one uh, publishing company wanted it, but not quite enough. But said to me, this absolutely should be a screenplay and it would be a great movie. Anyone listening out there, just let me know. (laughs) I did try to write a screenplay once and with a friend and we failed because we gave it to someone to read and this, our, our reader said, uh, have you guys thought about writing this into a novel? Because we're both novelists. Our screenplay was apparently packed with much more than it should have been. And I don't have the skills or the ability uh, to do it. I think it would be a fantastic play because in my mind, when Shakespeare's haunted by the Jessicas, I can see this amazing montage that's in the book, but as, a, as an opening scene. Yes, I agree. And that's why I mentioned it, because when I finished the book, I went, oh my gosh, this would make an awesome play. It's very visual, and the kind of sets that you could build for it, or even in black box, to be quite frank, it would just be beautiful. 
you know, when I think of plays, I'm like, okay, we see the stage. So, you know, we could have the play that Dan and Jessica are at in the beginning, and then we could have the play that uh, of Shakespeare's room. It would be beyond my skill set. Absolutely. I have to seed and tip my hat to all the playwrights and screen playwriters in the world who can make those events happen. Yes, it's another art form. I would definitely like to see it. I w- let's go. Well, just call me when it's out. <laughs> okay, I'll make sure to do that. Jessica, what was the first piece of writing you created that made you think, oh, this is kind of exciting. I think I'd like to do more of this. In high school, I started writing a novel. Of course, it was a young adult novel about young adults. And I would write it, and then my friends wanted to hear it at the end of school. Because, of course, I wasn't doing any of my schoolwork. I was writing my novel. And I would uh, read it to them, and they'd be wrapped. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting how I'm writing this and people actually want to hear it. So that was probably it. And I shelved a lot of my writing um, because I ended up, you know, during college having my family. And so I, I, I kind of waited to my thirties, but then it came back where I realized, oh, people actually want to hear what I'm saying. How exciting is that? Yes, that is exciting. And because your book, The Plays the Thing, involves time travel, what advice would you give aspiring writers regarding writing time travel stories? Well, first, of course, read and view as many time travel stories as you can and how it's done. And I I did that and realized I wanted to create some of my own rules for time travel because I think since time travel at this moment does not exist, no one can really tell you how it can happen. You know, there are people who are insist that they know how to time travel. <laughs> it's like, listen, if there are instructions for it, please bring them to me and I will write about it. But at this moment, there are no instructions, but you just have to be consistent, right? So you make up your own rules, you make up you know, if you look at a novel like The Time Traveler's Wife, she made up some very intense rules for her time travelers. And she followed them consistently. Nobody had written about time travel like that before. So you can make up your own rules, but be very clear and and decide what the rules are for yourself and follow them. <laughs> yes, having rules that stick are important. Okay, so your final question, Jessica, what is one book, apart from one of your own, you'd like to see more people reading? Well, you know, I, I, I just met, I realized I love The Time Traveler's Wife because of the, the deeper themes about connection and finding one's true love. And, and also because of the narratives of uh, time in the narrative. The other author I was thinking of because I'm reading her book, The Night Watchman, is Louise Erdrich. And I realized that I love every single thing she's ever written. I love her voice, her sensibility, her characters, her themes. Her writing is beautiful. I'm always amazed. I'm, I mean, my second favorite writer on the planet is Ann Patchett and also Toni Morrison. But I don't like across the board all of their books like I, I only there's only one Ann Patchett novel I don't like and it I won't tell anyone what it is because I maybe they will like it 
And Toni Morrison, I, I love all her themes, but I don't love all the stories the same way that I love some. So I think I like female writers. I like women. <laughs> I like women writers because I love male writers too, but there's something about those, those four writers that really do something for me. Well, Jessica, it's been fun chatting with you and thank you so much for taking time and being on the show. I wish you all the best of luck with The Plays The Thing. Oh, it's been so nice. I really appreciate your questions and, and, and that you read, you asked questions and you'd read the book. It's pretty difficult interviewing someone if you haven't read the book. And I enjoyed it. It was a fun book to read. Well, thank you. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at MandyJacksonBeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the Coffee Fund or you'd like to financially support an episode, go to thebookshoppodcast.brusbout.com, click on the orange heart in the top right corner of the page, and you can donate using PayPal. Or you can email me at thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly.